0: The scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 7, 11 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, A better hope is introduced, through through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, "'The Lord has sworn, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever.'" For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself." For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: <clears throat> Thanks, Gigi. Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, this is the, I'm trying to count now, maybe seventh, eighth sermon in a series on the book of Hebrews. And we are up to chapter seven today. <clears throat> uh, it's quite a long chapter. We cut out the first ten verses, um, <laughs> well, largely due to the fact that the first ten verses are all about Melchizedek. And as Drew said two weeks ago, uh, I told him I I loved this phrase or question. He said, you know, does anybody here know who Melchizedek is? If you do, you're lying. Uh, Because lots of scholars have spilled lots of ink on who this guy was. uh, And nobody seems to to really know. Uh, You should have received a worship folder when you came in. There's a little insert. On one side is the passage. On the other side is an outline. Uh, But just to rehash a little bit of background of Hebrews. Uh, Believers, at the time Hebrews was written, were being persecuted and tempted to give up, to quit the faith. Uh, Those who were tempted to go back to the old system of law keeping and Jewish rituals and all those kinds of things. And so this writer is trying to call them back to the gospel. Uh, We've seen how the book kind of feels like a back and forth. Uh, it, it's it's pastoral counseling, but at, at one moment he's kind of uh, exhorting, almost yelling at his uh, writer. Or, excuse me, at his readers. He's warning them. He's saying, "Beware, beware! Don't be deceived. Pay attention. Wake up!" And the next minute, he's counseling them. He's giving them encouragement and gentleness. But again, there's this theme of Jesus as priest, and we saw it a couple of weeks ago. And really, as you come to chapter seven, there's, the, the next few chapters are kind of an extended discussion of Jesus' priest. Uh, one writer says, in Jesus, God draws near to men, and in him, men may draw near to God with the assurance of constant and immediate access. And that's kind of review. Uh, we heard it back in chapter four, where we're told Jesus is a priest who's been tempted in every way as we are, and yet can sympathize with us in our weakness. And this makes us makes it possible for us to approach God's throne. Uh, but as, as we come to seven, you've got an extended discussion here. The uniqueness of Jesus' priesthood, its origin, but also how and why it's better than the priesthood of Aaron. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Aaron was the guy whose family was in charge of temple sacrifices and the like in the Old Testament. And so his point is, Jesus is a priest after a different order, but not only that, it's better. He's a better priest, it's a better order, it's a better covenant, as we'll see. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't briefly summarize the first ten verses uh, of chapter 7, where the writer returns to Melchizedek. It's kind of a biographical sketch. It's an extended argument for the superiority and uniqueness of this man's work as priest, but more importantly, I think, Melchizedek is foreshadowing Jesus, in that he's both a priest and a king. And if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think it was, I'd encourage you uh, to go back uh, onto the website or our podcast and listen to Drew's sermon from Hebrews 5, because he really expands on the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. He was a king of peace and a king of righteousness. And he brings those two things together, and ultimately we see them in and through the work of Jesus Christ, uh, even at the cross. But coming to the second half of chapter 7, uh, where we are today, looking at your, uh, your worship folder insert, I want to see three things. Uh, first, how sin causes us to strive hard and to prove ourselves, because we feel, like, we feel like we're constantly on trial, forever on trial, which is the first point there, drifting back to the weak and the useless. And then secondly, how Jesus' work as a priest is better and frees us from the need to be on or feel like we're on trial. And then lastly, the confidence we have through faith in Jesus as priest that produces in us the power and the ability to become priests to others and what that might look like. So those three things. So first, going back to the weak and the useless, how is a, this striving to prove ourselves if you don't know what I mean, uh, just think for a second about ways in which you are trying to gain acceptance with those around you, uh, or feel, do you ever feel like you're on trial? Do you ever feel like you're in a courtroom, this need to prove to everyone around you, I, I'm okay, I've got things under control, uh, the, the line or the statement, I can handle it, it's okay. Uh, we learned that early on. In fact, uh, we train our kids to try and get to the point where they can say, I don't need help, I can handle it. We're training them in in self-sufficiency. But this looks like walking around on eggshells. It's enslavement to the opinions of others, constantly worried, thinking, what do they think of me? How am I doing? Am I measuring up? And the verdict has to be positive, it has to be well done, it has to be boy. it has to be good job, or we fall apart. We, we, we slip into depression. Because we're so, we're so dying for that acceptance from other people. And the problem is that we live as though the law, whatever law you're living by, uh, having it all together, being good, maintaining a good record, we, we try to fulfill that. We've got to have that verdict. And it's just one of the ways in which the gospel of what I might call personal achievement or the gospel of success is manifested in us in our culture. It's constantly pushing us to perform, to measure, to to, to drive ourselves to be accepted. But let me ask a question. Who's the jury in your trial? Uh, Who are you building a case for? Who is it that looking at the evidence of your life the proof of your hard work you, who is it that you want to say as they look at that body of evidence good job who are you who are you pursuing that guilt that uh, verdict from of not guilty or well done or good job and i think if we're honest the answer is whatever the most important thing or the most important person in my life is that that's that's who my jury is that's who i'm wanting to say well done or good job. What or who we're most passionate about or most zealous for or most desirous to please. It's, in essence, it's our God. If you look at the passage, verses 18 and 19, so toward the bottom of the, the first paragraph there, the writer says, On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The writer is saying everyone on the planet is trying to draw near to God. Some God. Some authority. Some idol. Something that you are looking to to provide acceptance or to give you that well-done, good and faithful servant. And the Bible says our hearts are like idol factories, And so we're constantly being led, being tempted to draw near to other gods and we give offerings and sacrifices to them, we give hard work to them and we're hoping, maybe, just maybe, I'll get accepted. But you can't ever be sure because whatever God you serve, you can only draw near through your effort, through your hope, through your hard work. And so we're left with the question of why, why would you stake your life on a hope of making it? The good news of verse 19 is that there is, in this writer's words, a better hope through which we draw near to God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're unsure of whether you are, you're investigating, I want to say, categorically, we believe the better hope, in fact, the only way, the only hope to be truly Sure, we're accepted by the God that matters as Jesus Christ. And that is the hope that this writer is describing here. And so what is, what is the better hope, the better work of Jesus? Well, the idea of better throughout the book of Hebrews uh, is, uh, is pretty significant. The word occurs 13 different times from start to finish of this letter. He talks about a better name, a better covenant, Better promises, a better future, a better life. And in chapter 7, he talks about a better hope and a better covenant. He's trying to pastor his readers toward a consideration of what is better. That is, the former system of priests and access to God and bringing sacrifices day in and day out wasn't even remotely comparable to the new covenant, the new system. The better hope under Jesus. It's another way to counsel the readers away from sluggishness, as we heard about last week. Drifting, moving, slowly but surely, toward unbelief. It's a way of pastoring people toward faith, toward trust, toward holding fast. Well, I want to look at a couple of different things, or different aspects, I should say, about the better work of Jesus. The first is in verse 22. Verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And the only time in the New Testament that the word guarantor is used is right here. Another way to say it is surety. Jesus is the surety of a better covenant. And the word surety comes from an old English word from which we get our word security. Surety. Over time it became surety turned into security. And It's saying, really, that Jesus has a much weightier, a much more significant responsibility than being a mediator. He is a mediator, yes, but he's more than a mediator. He's a surety. He's a guarantor. And what that is, is a person who assumes legal responsibility for the fulfillment of another's debt or obligation and himself becomes liable if the person defaults. It's like a bond. It's like collateral, some sort of material uh, uh, m- material guarantee or material assurance that the debt is going to get paid. A mediator steps into the gap between two parties, but the surety stakes his life and his person on his word, on his fulfillment of the obligation. The old covenant under the priesthood of Aaron, had a mediator. It was the priest between God and the people. But there was no surety. No one could guarantee that the people's obligations to the covenant were fulfilled. The people failed miserably again and again and again. Part of the reason why the old system needed a constant daily sacrifice to go back, um, to, go back to God for forgiveness There was no surety. But this writer says, the covenant under Jesus is better because its fulfillment, its requirements have been met through the guarantor, Jesus Christ. His life and his sacrificial death are his fulfillment. While we were liable and guilty because of our disobedience to the punishment of hell, Jesus steps in, steps in front of us, between us and God. As our surety, And becomes himself liable. It's because of our default that Jesus is counted guilty and takes our punishment. He is assuming the legal responsibility for our debt. The debt we have, the debt we owe to our creator. An infinite debt for infinite transgressions and sin. And he himself steps in and says, I'll become liable if this person defaults. And in fact, uh, he's now, as our priest, as our surety, as our hope, uh, giving us confidence, giving us access, giving us the ability to stand before uh, the throne of grace.
0: Not only that,
1: he's saving at all times. If you look down a couple of verses later, the writer says in verse uh, 25, consequently, because... He holds his priesthood permanently. He continues forever in this role. Verse 25 says, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is saving at all times to the uttermost completely. Why is that so important? Why is it so powerful to know, to believe Jesus is saving every day to the uttermost? In the Greek, this... Verb is present tense, so it would be better translated something like, Consequently, he is saving to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We need, in order to battle unbelief, in order to continue to hold steadfast to the hope that we have in Jesus, we need the gospel's power presently, today, To save us. We need to experience that. Not just some sort of a past experience. But a present reality. I've heard it said before. That if your faith and your trust are in the Lord Jesus. He's not only saved you from the penalty of sin in the past. But he is currently saving you from the power of sin. So we have to ask the question. Each of us. How is he presently saving you? How is he presently working through you, to defeat the power of sin in your life? And some diagnostic questions we've asked them before, they're worth asking again. Are you becoming someone who's more courageous to be able to say hard things to those around you? Are you more willing to risk the disapproval of those who are close to you when you have to say those hard things to them? Are you becoming a person who's more self-forgetful, thinking about yourself less Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Are you a person who's becoming more meek, more humble, more gentle? In essence, how's the life of Jesus being reflected in and through you because he's currently saving you from the power of sin? We've got to answer that question. We've got to really diagnose our own hearts in that. But the writer's very clear. He doesn't just save you in the past. He's saving you in the present to the uttermost, and that's part of his priestly work. And if that wasn't good news enough, look at verse 25. Verse 25, at the end of the verse says, well, let me read the whole verse. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So not only is Jesus saving us to the uttermost, but his very life is centered Around this work of intercession, he lives for it. It's what makes his heart sing. It's what gets him up in the morning. Is to make intercession for you and I, all who draw near to God through him. Let's For a second, let's think about this word intercession, this ministry. What's, what's the word mean? And it really means something like as if Jesus moves in between God and us. He stands in front of us. So that we're no longer seen, we are we are in Him, we are we are behind Him, we're hidden in Him. But His work is not begging for mercy. It's not as though He's up there, wherever there is. I say up there. It's not as though He's there saying, "Father, give them another chance." I know they've messed up before, but this 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 one, this you know, my my uh, my servant Jonathan, he's messed up a lot, but. Give him another chance, please. Pretty please. You know, pretty please with sugar on top. It's not like he's up there begging God to give us another shot. Begging and pleading. Again and again and again. Because one day, if that's your idea of his intercessory work, one day, at least I begin to think, don't you think the father's going to get tired of that? I know he's done this before, Father, like 30 minutes ago, but can you help him, help him out? Give, give him You know, give him another shot. Give him another dose of forgiveness, please. What Jesus is doing is he is demanding justice. He says, Father, you demand justice, and the people, the person on whose behalf I am speaking is guilty, without a doubt. There's no doubt that your servant Jonathan is guilty. But I've made payment. I've pledged my very blood as payment for his debt, and it would be unjust and contrary to your character to receive two payments for the same debt. I've already paid for that. I've already paid for that. So he's, he's before the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father, standing there, demanding the justice of God for you and I, and all who draw near to God through him. Again, go back to the first point. If you're not drawing near to God through Him, drawing near to God through something else, He's not making intercession for you. Your justice will come when you face God on the day of judgment. But if you're drawing near to God through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is making intercession for you. He says, Father, your righteousness, your justice demands your full embrace and acceptance of this person throughout all eternity because of what I've done. Remember the payment I've made. So not only are we no longer on trial because Jesus has stepped in and said, Father, my word, my character, my life is the surety, is the guarantee that even if this person defaults on their debt, the debt's going to get paid. Not only has he stepped in, tried in our place, fulfilled our debt, but he's standing at the right hand of the Father, living for our intercession. If that doesn't free you from a need day in and day out to try and prove yourself or gain acceptance or draw near to some other God that's going to continue to let you down, I don't know what will. It's such a better way of living, as the writer describes. It's a better hope. It's a better covenant. It frees you from the fear of failure. It frees you from the fear of being condemned. We just read in our assurance of pardon. Who is the one who condemns? You, you can't be condemned. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has been condemned in your place. Through Jesus Christ, you receive, get this, an eternal, an eternal at a boy or at a girl. It's as if. An echo, this reverberation of the words, way to go, echo over your life forever. If you know that, as our memory verse last month said, heaven is singing over you, saying, at a boy, at a girl, then what freedom? What a, what a better way to live. And if I'm assured that Jesus is a priest like that for me, then what that does is it frees me. To move toward other people and to intercede on their behalf. As Barry was doing earlier, as we try to do each and every week. I can become, we can, you can become their advocate, their priest. And in our call to worship, as you look at the third point there, God calls his people a kingdom of priests. It's not the only place in the scriptures, but it's one. So it's a group of priests with a king. Very appropriate, right? Our king is unique because he's a priest as well. Part of the significance of him being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's, he's our king, but he's a priest to us and then alongside of us and empowers us to be priests as well. Look at verse 16 here in uh, uh, chapter 7. The writer says, it becomes more Back up to verse 15. This becomes more evident when another priest, that is Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, okay? Because this is, I mean, this just gets exciting. As high priest, Jesus', Jesus offering wasn't the life of another He didn't come with a goat or a bull and offer the life of another for his and the rest of the people's sins. Jesus' offering was his life. And through his life, the one who has faith in him can then offer their life on behalf of others. The power of his indestructible life gives the one who is anchored to him the power to offer themselves in the same way to other people. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children... Uh, friends to friends, uh, co-worker to co-worker, the list goes on. All the different ways that you're related to other people. And the good news of this is, knowing that he's interceding for you will give you the ability and the joy of interceding for others. If you are united to Jesus, his indestructible life becomes yours. Your life becomes indestructible. Yes. Your life becomes indestructible. Even if you die, your life is not destroyed. Physically, if you die, your life is not destroyed. You now have the power of an indestructible life flowing through you. His priesthood makes your priesthood possible. And the church is called then to be priests for each other and for everyone around us. It might look, let me give you a couple of practical ways this might look. It might be demanding justice for those who are suffering or being oppressed by injustice. It might be praying for an elderly man suffering from Alzheimer's who has no idea who God is anymore and no idea who you are either. It might mean interceding, not just in prayer, but speaking on behalf of someone who needs help. Someone helpless who's being attacked or abused. Not just physically or bodily, maybe it's their reputation, maybe it's their character that's under attack. And being a priest requires you to step in and speak the truth and defend them. Others in our society who are treated as less than human or who are voiceless. Being a priest demands we step up and demand justice for them. Like the unborn, the elderly, shut-ins, immigrants. It's why the writer says back in chapter 3 that we must be exhorting one another every day. Because as we do that, we are being priests to one another that is the work of a priest the westminster shorter catechism describes jesus's work of priest in two ways it says by once offering himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice that's how that's one way he accomplishes his work and secondly by continually making intercession for us and so as we come to this table we are seeing in in, in technicolor, it, like a movie reel being done for you, you're seeing his work of offering up himself to satisfy divine justice. And as you come to take of his body broken and his blood shed, you, as you take take in his indestructible life, you become a person who then goes out through the power of his indestructible life uh, to bear the cost of, of, of of priesting, so to speak, those around you. It's going to look different in different ways. But rest assured, Jesus' work as a priest, as our surety, enables us to get this done uh, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in this room, for the sake of our community, and for the sake of our world. So let me pray uh, as we come to this table uh, this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were willing to, to step up and be the guarantor of a better covenant. That you were willing to say to the Father, my, my life, my word, my, my record for, the, for these ones who, if they default, would have to pay the ultimate penalty uh, of death and eternity and hell forever. Thank you for stepping up to do that work. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as as we come to experience your priestly work on our behalf, that we would become, by the power of your spirit, by the power of your indestructible life flowing through us, that we would be the kind of people who offer ourselves on behalf of others, who who become priests uh, after the order of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up to satisfy divine justice and is now continually interceding on our behalf. Help us to be people like that so that you might be glorified and we pray in your name. Amen. Um, We are in the uh, second week of the season of Lent and we will be taking communion together each week um, in the same way. Uh, So I just want to remind you of two things, two warnings, two two cautions that we give each time we take the Lord's Supper together. The first is that this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a table that exists only because of his work as priest. Only because he offered himself up to satisfy divine justice. His body being broken, his blood being shed in our place. Uh... Only because of that are we able to even come in the first place. This is his table. It's his work that results here. And so if your faith and your trust is not in him, if you have not entered into or or come to the place where you understand what he has done by faith, offered your life to him, we'd ask you to to refrain. Uh, Secondly, it's a table of peace. By offering up himself to satisfy divine justice, he won peace for us and so if there's not peace in your life if there's a relationship or a situation where you need to go and, and maybe be a priest to another person intercede uh, in that situation uh, pursue reconciliation uh, we, we ask you to go and do that take care of that first before you come and then come back next week uh, and partake of the uh, the elements um, the way we do this each week Each time is you come to the middle aisle here. We'll have some servers up on this side and some servers on this side. Uh, You'll come take a piece of bread and a cup, return to your seat on the outside here. uh, And then once everybody's received, we'll take together. If you're in need of prayer, uh, maybe you, I I need someone to pray for me. I don't feel like I can take communion today because there's a lack of peace and I need prayer. Or what, what have you, it doesn't matter what the situation is we're going to have uh, two, uh, basically prayer stations, uh, two men up here who will be uh, offering themselves to pray with you. Uh, So take note of that too if you need prayer. On the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup, and again, when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink this, all of it, because this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so let me say, these are the gifts of God for the people of God, Please take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving as you come this morning. Uh, I would ask the men uh, to please come forward so they can serve. Uh, You should know who you are. Uh, Taking the bread together, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And taking the cup, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Father, thank you for feeding us, mysteriously feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of our Lord, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that as you feed us, it would fuel us uh, for not just the fight of our faith, uh, but for the mission that you have set before us, uh, to bring honor and glory to your name, uh, to share your love with the world around us. Help us to be faithful to that task by your Spirit. And thank you uh, for... The spiritual food you've nursed us with this morning. Lord Jesus, we honor and magnify and praise your holy name for your work. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, thanks for being here. I know it was long, but uh, it's been good, I, I think. Um, two reminders if you are coming to that membership class, uh, head over to the fellowship hall. Uh, everything should be there. <clears throat> if it's not, it's Connie's fault. Um, But uh, I I will be there. I'm actually leading that class. Uh, And then if you are planning to go to Nicaragua, uh, you do really need to come to this meeting. I just want to shoot a couple things real quick at you and then let you go. Um, So, those two things. Uh, The hope that you and I have of becoming a priest and advocating, uh, not just if we're volunteering for Youth for Christ or you're on staff with Youth for Christ, but in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever you are, is or are, I should say, these words that I'm saying over you now, the benediction. Uh, It's the hope we have. It's the fuel for us as we go uh, on on our mission that God has given to us. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.